Sabbath to all the saints of God. It is good to be here. It is good to be in God's house, even though it's probably just me and a few. <laughs> but it's good to be here. I've not been here in a little while, and I trust that we all long for the time that we can come back, especially in the times that we live now. You know, the testimony and the faith that we get from being together is sorely missed. So, pleasant Sabbath to you. I would like to thank God for this opportunity to speak on His behalf. Um, it's a scary thing, but I trust that God is with me. And for those of you who have organized this program, God's blessings to you as we discuss all of those hidden persons in Scripture that sometimes we have a tendency to overlook. I trust that this uh, series has been a blessing to all of you who would have listened, learned, gleaned, vowed to change, etc., and um, I'm really happy to be part of this. Uh, the person that I ought to speak on today is Tamar. Tamar. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about her. So before we jump into her story, let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask for God's Holy Spirit and for his guidance to be with us. Father God, this is your word. And there is absolutely no wasted time, word, narrative, experience in your word. So God, today we have come to your word hoping, praying, and lifting up our hearts to you. Expecting that you would honor your word. You would make it alive. You would cause it to... Divide us on the piercing to the bone and marrow. We look for you today to see a picture of you that would draw us closer to you. So open our hearts, make us malleable and pliable. Break up our fallow ground, dear God, and open to us your word. It's Jesus' name we lift this prayer. Amen. I have titled this message, Three Calls to Repentance. Three Calls to Repentance. Tamer's story is probably one of the most concealed of the hidden figures in the Bible. It's, it's so layered that at first glance, it appears to be one of the quirkiest, one of the weirdest stories that you can possibly read in the Bible that will leave you wondering, what am I supposed to take away from that? It renders itself inaccessible as it is vaulted in the lives of the surrounding stories and narratives of those who are in her life. Her almost static status gives rise to the apparition of a somewhat conniving woman with possible sinister plans. And to unravel the mystery and feed lavishly on the word, we must touch the surrounding characters in her story. But we start with Tamar. I read to you from God's word, Genesis chapter 38. We, I will be reading from chapters 1 through 14. And it says, and it came to pass that at that time, 
Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went in to her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was a chizib when she bore him. Then Judah took her wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Enter Tamar into our story. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, get this, go in unto your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, and therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Least he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. And he went up to his sheep sharers in Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Dolomite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to share his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat down in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shela was grown, and she was not given him to wife. Quite the interesting narrative. We have Tamar's story does look a bit twisted and convoluted. But where does it start? Where does it really start? It means that we have to look at all of the players in the story. And so having this notion and this idea of who Tamar is, let's look at the daughter of that Canaanite, Shua, who's nameless. Nameless, this Canaanite woman is now married to Judah. She's married and she bears him these three sons, Ur and Onan, are born first. And then it appears that sometime after Shelah is born, how long after the Bible doesn't say, chronology does not hint, but it appears to be some period after his two brothers. And at this time, they are in a place called Chezib. The first boy, let's talk about him, Ur. The Bible tells us that Ur died because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. There are different senses to express the meaning of wicked in the Bible. Many, many senses. Interestingly enough, in this particular chapter, two of them are found. Yes, we have Ur and the first sense rests with him. For Ur is the firstborn. And in this sense, 
because he's first born, there are so many expectations of who he would be, who he would come. He's heir. He's also the one who would receive the birthright. And in contrast to that, and to a way that he ought to live and carry about himself, Ur is wicked. Check this. The sense of wicked here is bad, evil, no good, and pertaining to that which is, listen, that which is more, not morally pure or good according to a proper standard. And it's implying that this kind of wicked or this kind of evil severs a relationship to a person or a principle which is proper. Now that's interesting. Because this sense of wicked seems to be pretty all-rounded. He's bad. He's also having within him the ability to interrupt relationship, not only to people, but to principles. This here is an adjectival use, which means that something is being described. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, it is describing uh, not just some abstract thought that's somewhere in the sky, but Ur. Now listen to this. As we take these properties and apply to Ur, they then become someone who's depraved, someone who's sexually immoral, contemptible, reprobate, impure, blasphemous, treacherous, disgraceful, perverted, untruthful, and there are many others. This exact same word used here to describe Ur is the same word used to describe the men of Sodom. Now the Bible doesn't hint that Ur in any way behaved in a, you know, Sodom way. But the fact that that is the word used speaks about someone whose continued living is against the will of God. It is almost as if Ur was the wickedest person to live in his day. God slew him. He did not even allow him to have an heir or a progeny. How does someone so wicked come from Judah? A few lines describe Onan. It is a place where the other sense of the word wicked is seen. So, his wickedness is described as a state or an action, listen to this, that is detrimental to one's life or to the life of other people. To the lives of other people. So, Onan, Onan's wickedness is a bit different to his brothers because Onan's wickedness appears to be more of a, an inside act. You see, Onan was displeasing, as some versions say, and the scripture says, whenever he went into Tamar, you see, in the English, sometimes it gives the sense that, that he, he, he went into her once, and then he spilled a seed on the ground, and God was upset with that. But in the Hebrew, it was repetitive. He went in again and again and again as a husband would for his wife, and every time he did it, he spilled his seed on the ground. You see, you have to understand that his actions were repeatedly against what God willed. Over and over he was given an opportunity to follow in the path that God designed for that heir that would come from Judah and over and over he decided that he would not. This was done inside. You see, Onan was that son that said, yes daddy. 
Onan was that son that was obedient, and so from the outside, he maybe even looked like a spiritual person, but on the inside of his household where he ought to model the realities of living the life of one who knows God, he did wickedly. His wickedness was in secret. Then comes Shela, the interesting one, really, who was born in a place called Chezeb. And Chezeb meant deceit. <laughs> Whenever the Bible mentions particular proper nouns and you take a look, you get some very interesting insight. Shela was born in a place that was called deceit. So Shela is born in a place that is called deceit. And his name, his name, Shela, the only name that is given a meaning in this passage, say for Tema, Shela's name means the content of an appeal or solicitation for a certain action from a superior one who is able to enact the request. In other words, Shela's name is a recognition by Judah that he needed help from a superior one for whatever situation was happening in his family only God could fulfill. Yes, and that came about in a place of deceit. Very interestingly, God, therefore, is the one being called upon by Judah, no doubt. Because I'm sure he saw how Ur and Ur Onan were going. I am sure he recognized their wickedness, and I am certain that he called out to God. Shela's name is recognition of the fact that he was seeking to have God to stem the tide of evil running in his family. But even more interested is the fact that he chose to blame Tamar. He blamed Tamar under the guise of superstition because he thought that she had something to do with his family genes. So Judah blames Tamar for his family mess. Enters Judah into our narrative. Genesis chapter 38, our chapter for consideration says that it came to pass that at that time. That's verse 1. That is how it started. At that time. Now it's really weird for it to start that way unless there is something happening in the chapter before that we need to take a look at. And I do suggest that we do. In chapter 37 of Genesis, this is a place where Jacob sends Joseph alone to go give to his brothers some victuals so that they could be sustained on their job. And, and, and this is a passage where when Joseph is seen in the distance, his brothers look and say, hey, here comes the dreamer. Let's deal with this chap. It is in that passage of Genesis chapter 37, not only do they have a plan to deal with the dreamer, that, but that plan is a deviant one. They want to kill him. One would expect that the one to whom the birthright was given, Mr. Judah, he would stand up and say, guys, he might be a little annoying, but you know what? Let's, let's leave the guys, send them home quickly, take what he has and let him go. But Judah, Judah was in on the plan. 
yes, man, the Bible tells us in chapter 37 that Judah was the one who said, listen, let's not kill him. Okay, at least he got to that point. But then let's sell him like a nobody is not anything better. Let's give away all that he thinks he is and pass him off to people who would not count him as anything, thereby killing his dreams. Judah, in that passage, did not display the, the role of the one who would take over the family. And so chapter 38 begins by saying, and it came to pass that at that time, that scenario is what birthed the conversation about Judah's life. At that time, the Bible tells us, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite. Now, it appears as though Judah's guilt for what had happened was a little too much for him to handle. And to see his father crying consistently, constantly, day in, day out, over this boy that was alive yet thought to be dead, Judas could not. And so Judah takes up himself, leaves his father's house, and heads deeper into the land of Canaan, deeper into the land of trouble. Then the Bible tells us that he gets married, married to a Canaanite woman, someone that the Bible tells us even Jacob tried to avoid being married to. Uh, Abraham sent someone way across on the other side to avoid being married to the Canaanites. No doubt Judah's marriage would have caused some measure of pain to his father, but he got married. And yes, to a woman who couldn't help him with his problem of his guilt. He's married. And comes ill in his life. It's interesting enough that what we do see in Ur's life is a replication of the wickedness in Judah's life. Ur, again, to remind us, is holding wickedness that pertains to something that breaks the proper standard. And something that hinders or severs a relationship to a person or a principle. The Joseph story is pivotal for us to see her. For us to see Judah's life. Judah was her some year or two before. Judah was her some years before. He was not concerned with how Joseph felt, with how his father felt. Judah was ill. And this was Judah's first call to repentance. You see, Judah was supposed to look at Ur and go, mm -mm. This kind has never been born into my family. Something is up. Judah was supposed to go sit with Ur and say, this is not the direction. Judah was supposed to inquire of God, what should I do with this boy of mine? How should I? And in making those inquiries and in seeking to make it right, God would have revealed to Judah, hey Judah, this is you. Instead of getting to that place and coming to that point, Judah starts looking at Tamar. So nothing happens. And Judah misses the teaching moment. And I guess that reminds me of something that I ought to share with us. 
We ought to look out for God's teaching moments in our lives. Yes, some of these teaching moments may come pretty ugly. Yes, some of these teaching moments may be very uncomfortable as it peels back our outer coats and reveals what is within our hearts. Yes, some of these teaching moments may get us feeling a little offset about ourselves, but listen up. God's teaching moments are the best times to learn our lessons. Had Judah only tapped into that which God was prepared to share, I am sure this story would have gone differently. But he missed it. And I hope that within our own lives, as we look around during this COVID time and the difficulties that we all face and the difficulties that lie ahead, that we are not just simply murmuring about how difficult it is or how difficult it would get, but rather we ought to be asking our Heavenly Father, what shall I do with that which you are teaching me? Sometimes even the things within us, the circumstances bring out. And so for some of you, this COVID has showed you a side of you that you never thought existed. You've lost your job and you have thought so many times about cursing God and dying. You are working at home and it's pretty difficult for you to get over. And some of you are in need of, of counseling. You're depressed. You're wondering when this will be over. How could God be so cruel? Well, listen up. Maybe you just got to ask God, is there something in me that you are showing? How can I overcome? And then with the coming of Onan, the selfish son, you see, he was inwardly wicked. And, and so outwardly, he looked like he was doing right. But behind closed doors, his wicked, selfish heart willfully interrupted the plan for the progenation of seed. All he was considering was having it for himself. You see, with Ur out of the picture, it meant that the birthright should fall to him. It meant that the inheritance, the larger portion, should fall to him. If, if, if he brought up seed onto Ur, then it meant that Ur's portion will go with his seed. And Onan was not about to have it. So, inwardly, selfishness choked the ability for God to reach through to Onan. But you know something? For Judah, by the time the second son has a problem, any well-thinking parent should go, hold on a moment here. Something's off. Oh, wicked. Onan, wicked too? No. Onan, come. Let's sit. Let's have a chat. Your brother died for X and X reasons. Let's go before God. Let's pray and fast. Let's pull it back. Let's return to the Lord. Not Judah. Judah now openly fingers Tamar with his superstition that Tamar is in fact the one causing the death or the deaths of his son. Oh. <laughs> But interestingly enough, yet again, in this now family setting, because Onan is involved, it's not just Judah and Ur, in this family setting, guess what comes out again? Judah's ill influence again is being displayed in his son, Onan. Yes, 
Onan displayed the defects of his father because Onan was interrupting the divine plan. Judah thought that by selling Joseph, he would do the same. Like father, like son. And this brings me to the second thing that I want to point out to the families. We are not islands. God made it in such a way, made the family in such a way that each one of us flows out into the other. Judah's ill effects affected his family. What about yours? What about mine? This is a family affair. It is, it is for us to now pull things together. It is for us to sit down with each other and recognize, you know, something. There is something in you that I saw when I was young that I didn't like. And you're doing it. And that's not of God. We've got to go to God about this so that together as a family we can be saved. There is need for the family to come together because in this passage had Judah done that. I'm sure the story would have been different. It's Onan, it's Sailor, and his wife is still alive. But again, <laughs> he blames Tamar, and Onan reaches beyond his blind, blind father's ability to help him. And the Bible tells us that God slew him. So when we do have our family problems and our family issues and the need for our families to reach up and reach out to God, don't waste time. So the Bible tells us that even though Judah missed his second opportunity for repentance, you know, God, God, God was already working on his third opportunity for repentance. Yes, and that is the God of mercy that's behind the scene. And he's beginning to come to the front. While the passage may look void of God or God is just appearing to be a judgment type God. The truth is with every son, God was giving Judah an opportunity to take up his responsibility as the one who would head the household. And here he comes with Number three, so eventually that daughter of Shua died. And the issue with Selah and Tamar comes to the front. Judah did say to Tamar, go wait. When, when um, Shelah gets big enough, I'll give him to you. He did not keep his word. And some people may look at Tamar now and go, so why did she do what she did? That was devious. Well, listen to this. How she did it may have been a little egregious, but you know what? She was following a principle in Canaanite land where if none of the sons are able to raise up heir to the dead husband that she first had, it was the father-in-law's responsibility to do so. And while she may have done it in the most uh, kind of a way, the truth is she was still trying her best, faithful to the cause of raising seed. So now, where does that leave us? When we look at Shayla, and like I explained before, his name is, is Judah's cry for God's help. But then when we look at Shelah, he's born in a land that's a place that's known as deceit. And it's full of instruction for us, you know. 
Because ultimately, Judah is hoping that God will help him without being fully surrendered to God. Judah is hoping that God would come through and stem the tide of evil in his family without himself trying to be the father that he should. Judah is actually still trying to manipulate God into doing what he wants. And so just like his father Abraham, and just like his father Isaac, and just like his father Jacob, Judah does his own thing. He marries Shelah off to somebody else because that woman, something's up with her. So, effectively trying to do things in his own way, brings out the picture of Judah's self-righteousness. He didn't get it the first time. He didn't get it the third time, the second time. And by the third time around, he firmly believes that it's a woman who has the problem. He does not see himself. He's not seeing that he has issues that he needs to deal with. He didn't see that he has guilt on his back from since they sold Joseph. None of this is popping up in poor Judah's mind, but I'm positive, etched way at the back is that niggling feeling that my father thinks my brother is dead. But he chooses not to do anything about it. That self-righteousness of Judah in condemning Tamar when she is found with child comes out to the front. He says, bring her out. Let's burn her. Speaks of the way that he held himself also in contempt. And interestingly enough, this last point here, while it not necessarily speaks to the church, it reminds me of the issue that the church faces. Its inability to see itself. Its inability to recognize that it's poor, wretched, blind, naked, and in need of eye salve, in need of clothes, in need of, uh, of God's covering. Just like Judah who didn't see it. So his own pronouncement was going to come back on his own head. God help his church today. Maybe, maybe, maybe if we listen to God and see all of his teaching avenues and devices in our lives, our church would certainly be in a better place if each individual that makes up a family comes to that point of being repentant personally, families become repentant as a whole, God's church would be different. And you are probably wondering, probably wondering, you know, different how. Don't you think it's time for the power of the Holy Spirit? Don't you think it's time for God's church to rise up and finish this work? How much longer do you think it's good for us to be here? Huh? An estimated 20 or so years. Do you have plans for 20 years other than finishing God's work? And yet still the church, unfortunately at times, looks down her nose at people who may not necessarily call God God, but who are faithfully doing what they know they should do. So this message is also for the church. Personal issues of repentance, family issues of repentance, they affect the effectiveness of the church and it hinders God's plan, but it doesn't cancel it. God will have his way as we see with Judah's life. God did indeed have his way and 
Tamar seamlessly enters back into this part of the story. Her plan worked. No, it didn't work because she got pregnant. It worked because Judah saw who he was. Watch this. Verse 26 tells us, So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give Selah to her to wed. Now, he recognized, he came to the point where he realized I was wrong. And that was good enough for God. The Bible lets us know that Judah changed. Judah became a different person to the point where when the famine was happening in, in, in Canaan and, and Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt and they met Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph. The second time around, they were to bring Benjamin. The Bible lets us know that it is at that point that we see how much Judah had changed. Judah said to his father, if I don't bring back the boy, kill my two sons. He wasn't talking about Selah. Onan and Ur were already dead. He was speaking about Perez and Zerah, born of Tamar. Why? Because these two boys fell right into line, right on track with, being with, with their inheritance or to receive it. And Perez was the one who received the birthright. But this story is so beautiful and interesting that I want to just quickly show you how God is consistent. So with Abraham, we have Ishmael and Isaac, and the younger one is the one who became the one with the birthright, that'd be Isaac. And then we have uh, Isaac with Jacob and Esau, and the younger one is the one who obtained the birthright. And then we have Jacob with Reuben and Judah. And Judah, younger than Reuben, is the one who obtained the birthright. And now we have these two twins. The first one, Zera, put his hand out, and the, and the midwife said, he came first, tied a string. He pulled it back and outbreached Perez, supposedly the younger of the two. But you know what? Perez was the beginning of things and the end of things. For Perez's name meant to destroy and I do believe that having gotten it after these many generations of deceitfulness and being, uh, you know, lying and deceiving, etc., I do believe that God brought an end to it in Judah's life. So what are we talking about? We are talking about a call to repentance, a call to repentance at the personal level. To recognize that God is trying to teach us things about ourselves with our circumstances and our situations. It's not for us to point fingers. It's for us to ask God, is it I? What shall I do? If this is a call to repentance for families to recognize that we do have issues and these issues can be solved with God, by God, and he will give the solution for things that we ought to put away, behaviors that are deviant, um, aspects of our entertainment lives that we need to definitely underscore and get out of our households. God will help our families and these two groups of individuals and that explodes into a group of a family uh, continues to grow into what we have a church. And what are we saying? God's church needs to also recognize that it is sitting deep in some measures of self-righteousness and God is there knocking, knocking, waiting for an answer. 
so that we could buy of him gold that stride in the fire, so that we could have him anoint our eyes with ourselves, so that we can have the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we could be clothed, so that we can finish this work. This is an appeal so that all of us will be where God wants us to be. And yes, by the grace of Almighty God, continue with what God started way back then. Yes, continue having persons, heirs, being joined to this kingdom. Make that our first business, God will take care of the rest. But then we have to come to the place where we recognize that without God, we are nothing. We have to come to the place where we recognize that we need, in fact, to be truly repentant and then allow God to do his best work. For he promised that as we are repentant, he will give us a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit. And yes, he will cause us to walk in his ways and we will keep his statutes and do them. This is the God to whom we speak and the God that we speak of today. So will you accept? Will you accept what he's shown you today? Will you accept when he points out his devices to you, his teaching devices, families, church? May God put us in a place where our hearts are open to him. May God allow us to experience the change that's a necessity for our experience with him. And based on these words, I do believe that it's your heart desire as it is mine to be where God wants us to be. So let's bow our heads and we'll lay this to God and we know that he will hear. We know that he will answer. Let's pray. Holy God, what an awesome God you are. Your word is never void. It will never return to you void. It will accomplish what you have sent it to you, sent it to do. You are always speaking. It's not a static word, but it is a consistent speaking because the word is alive in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, today we open our hearts, we open our hands to you. And we say to you, God, help us. For each person who is with in this space and having this prayer, you see them. Father, you know them. You are aware of all of the devices that you've been using to teach them and to lead them in your paths of righteousness. You see the many times they've missed it. And yet still, you're already on track with another. Because your interest is for us to be repentant. So the first thing is that we acknowledge that you are God and we will serve you. And the next thing we acknowledge is that we are not all righteousness. We are undone. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you completely. And we ask, oh God, show us, teach us, lead us into yourself. We ask, Father, for our families some of our very own traits have been displayed in our children, our brothers, sisters. You know how it goes. You understand the stuff in the family, but it's never, ever beyond you and your ability to fix it. So, Father, we give our families to you. And I pray that you would call every family 
that is represented here today, you would call every one of us back to yourself in repentance so that you could use us for your glory. Some corner where we live is in need of ministry that you have given to each family. So help us, dear Lord. Take away from within us all of the wickedness, deceit, treachery, blasphemy, lying, and things, oh God, that Peter says, quite frankly, along with Paul, those are things of the past. We ought to walk as children of light. And so therefore, we beseech you, Father, please, let us walk as children of light. We recognize that we are part of a bigger whole, your church. You, God, promise that when your church has the image of your son repl replicated in it, then you know that we are ready. So we ask you, dear God, let us look like your son. Take away the things that cause us to resemble that of the old man of sin, that of the enemy. And please, cover us with the robe of Jesus' righteousness. Cause us to walk in your way. Wash us clean, O oh God. Make us whole. Give us your Holy Spirit. A new mind, O oh God, the mind of Christ. I pray for your church today, God, that you will empower us with the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would cause us to rise up and finish this work. Please, every corner of this globe, where your people who are called by your name exists. We pray, God, fill us with your power. Oh, God, the Judah become perfect. We don't know. But between that time and when they went down to Egypt, the Bible doesn't tell us that he told his father his wrong. But the fact is he rose up and he returned home. And Tamar became a member of the household of God. And Jesus, you were proud enough to be a member of Judah's household. So Father, it doesn't matter to you the places that we have meandered, the paths that we have taken that were completely unlike you. What is important to you is that we walk toward you. So as a church, we surrender. Oh, forgive us and cleanse us and restore us. And then, God, the best would be to hear you look at every one of us with your all-seeing eye and say to us, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Till then, Father, we trust you to keep your word to us and we trust you to keep us submitted to you. We trust you to hold us in the palm of your hand. And as Jesus said, don't let anyone pluck us out of your hand. But Father, like the great God that you are, make every move possible to save us. Is my humble prayer to you. In Jesus' worthy name. Amen. And amen. May God richly bless every one of us as we continue to walk toward him. May we learn of him. And may his cycles of righteousness be the path that we take. In Jesus' name, amen.